Chapter One of the Great White Queen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tom Weiss. The Great White Queen by William LeCue. Chapter One. A Romance. It is a curious story full of exciting adventures, extraordinary discoveries, and mysteries amazing. Strange, too, that I, Richard Scarsmere, who, when at school hated geography as bitterly as I did algebraic problems, should even now, while just out of my teens, be thus enabled to write down this record of a perilous journey through a land known only by name to geographers, a vast region wherein no stranger had ever before set foot. The face of the earth is well explored nowadays, yet it has remained for me to discover and traverse one of the very few unknown countries, and to give the bald-headed old fogies of the Royal Geographic Society a lesson in the science that I once abominated. I have witnessed with my own eyes the mysteries of Mo. I have seen the great white queen." Three years ago I had as little expectation of emulating the intrepidity of Stanley as I had of usurping the throne of England. An orphan, both of whose parents had been drowned in a yachting accident in the Solent, and whose elder brother succeeded to the estate, I was left in the care of a maternal uncle, a regional martinet, who sent me for several long and dreary years to Dr. Trigger's well-known grammar school at Eastbourne, and had given me to understand that I should eventually enter his office in London. Briefly I was, when old enough, to follow the prosaic and ill-paid avocation of clerk. But for a combination of circumstances I should have by this time butted into one of those silk-hatted, patent-booted, milk-and-bun lunchers who sit on their high perches and drive a pen from ten till four at a salary of sixteen shillings weekly such was the calling my relative thought good enough for me although his own sons were being trained for professional careers in his own estimation all his ideas were noble and his generosity unbounded but not in mine but this is not a school story although its preparatory scenes take place at school some preparatory scenes must take place at school but the drama generally terminates on the broader stage of the world. Who cares for a rehearsal, save those who have taken part in it? I vow, if I had never been at Trigger's, I would skip the very mention of his name. As it is, however, I often sigh to see the shadow of the elms clustering around the playground, to watch the moonbeams illumine the ivied wall opposite the dormitory window. I often dream that I am back again, a Caesar-hating pupil. Dr. Trigger, commonly called Old Trigger, lived at Upperton, a suburb of Eastbourne, and had accommodation for seventy boys, but during the time I remained there we never had more than fifty. His advertisements in local and London papers offering commercial training for thirty guineas, including laundress and books, bracing air, gravel soil, diet best and unlimited, reduction for brothers, were glowing enough but they never whipped up business sufficiently to attract the required number of boarders. Nevertheless, I must admit that old Trigger, with all his faults and severity, was really good-hearted. 
He was a little sniffing, rasping man with small, square, feeble, bent figure, mean, irregular features badly arranged around a formidable bent, broken red nose, thin, straggling gray hair and long gray mutton-chop whiskers, constantly blinking little eyes and very assertive, energetic manners. He had a constant air of objecting to everything and everybody on principle. Knowing that I was an orphan, he sometimes took me aside and gave me sound fatherly advice, which I have since remembered, and am now beginning to appreciate. His wife, too, was a kindly motherly woman, who, because being practically homeless, I was often compelled to spend my holidays at school, seemed better disposed towards me than to the majority of the other fellows. Yes, I got on famously at Trigger's. Known by the abbreviated appellation of Scars, I enjoyed a popularity that was gratifying, and, bar one or two sneaks, there was not one who would not do me a good turn when I wanted it. The sneaks were outsiders, and although we did not reckon them when we spoke of the school, it must not be imagined that we forgot to bring them into our calculations in each conspiracy of devilment, nor to fasten upon them the consequences of our practical jokes. My best friend was a mystery. His name was Omar Sanan, a thin, square chap with black piercing eyes set rather closely together, short crisp hair, and a complexion of a slightly yellowish hue. I had been at Trigger's about twelve months and was thirteen when he arrived. I well remember that day. Accompanied by a tall, dark-faced man of decided negroid type, who appeared to be ill at ease in European clothes, he was shown into the doctor's study where a long consultation took place. Meanwhile, among the fellows, much speculation was rife as to who the stranger was, the popular opinion being that Trigger should not open his place to savages, and that if he came we would at once conspire to make his life unbearable and send him to Coventry. An hour passed, and listeners at the keyhole of the doctor's door could only hear mumblings, as if the negotiations were being carried on in the strictest secrecy. Presently, however, the black man wished Trigger good day, and much to everyone's disgust and annoyance, the yellow-faced stranger was brought in and introduced to us as Omar Sanam, the new boy. The mystery surrounding him was inscrutable. About my own age he spoke very little English and would in conversation often drop unconsciously into his own language, a strange one which none of the masters understood or even knew its name. It seemed to me composed mainly of P's and L's. To all our inquiries as to the place of his birth or nationality he remained dumb. Whence he had come we knew not. We were only anxious to get rid of him. I do not think Trigger knew very much about him. That he paid very handsomely for his education I do not doubt, for he was allowed privileges accorded to no one else, one of which was that on Sundays when we were marched to church he was allowed to go for a walk instead, and during prayers he always stood aside and looked on with superior air, as if pitying our simplicity. His religion was not ours. For quite a month it was a subject of much discussion as to which of the five continents Omar came from, until one day, while giving a geography lesson to the master who had taken the west coast of Africa as his subject asked, 
where does the volta river empty itself there was a dead silence that confessed ignorance we had heard of the russian volga but never of the volta suddenly omar who stood next to me exclaimed in his broken english the volta empties itself into the gulf of guinea i've been there quite correct nodded the master approvingly while baines the fellow on my left whispered yellow face has been there he's a guinea pig see i laughed and was punished in consequence but the suggestion of the witty baines being whispered round the school was effective from that moment the yellow-faced mysterious foreigner was commonly known as the guinea pig we did our best to pump him and ascertain whether he had been born in guinea but he carefully avoided the subject the information that he came from the west coast of africa had evidently been given us quite involuntarily he had been asked a question about a spot he knew intimately and the temptation to exhibit his superiority over us had proved too great not only was his nationality a secret but many of his actions puzzled us considerably as an instance whenever he drank anything water tea or coffee he never lifted his cup to his lips before spilling a small quantity upon the floor if we had done this punishment would promptly have descended upon us but the masters looked on at his curious antics in silence around his neck beneath his clothes he wore a sort of necklet composed of a string of tiny bags of leather in which were sewn certain hard substances that could be felt inside even in the dormitory he never removed this although plenty of chaff was directed towards him in consequence of this extraordinary ornament it was popularly supposed that he came from some savage land and that when at home this string of leather bags was about the only article of dress he wore if rather dull at school he very soon picked up our language with all its slang and quickly came to the fore in athletics in running swimming and rowing no one could keep pace with him on foot he was fleet as a deer and in the water could swim like a fish while at archery he was a dead shot within three months he had lived down all the prejudices that had been engendered by reason of his color and i confess that i myself who had at first regarded him with gravest suspicion now began to feel a friendliness towards him once or twice at considerable inconvenience to himself he rendered me valuable services and on one occasion got me out of a serious scrape by taking the blame himself therefore within six months of his arrival we became the firmest of chums at work as at play we were always together and notwithstanding the popular feeling being antagonistic to my close acquaintance with the guinea pig i nevertheless knew from my own careful observations that although a foreigner half savage he might be he was certainly true and loyal to his friends once he fought it was soon after we became chums that he had a quarrel with the bully baines over the ownership of a catapult baines who was three years older heavier built and much taller threatened to thrash him this threat was sufficient omar at once challenged him and the fight took place down in the paddock behind a hedge secure from triggers argus eye as the pair took off their coats one of the fellows jokingly said the guinea pig's a cannibal he'll eat you baines everybody laughed but to their astonishment within five minutes our champion pugilist lay on the ground with swollen eye and sanguinary nose 
imploring for mercy. That he could fight Omar quickly showed us, and as he released the bully after giving him a sound dressing as a cat would shake a rat, he turned to us and with a laugh observed, "'My people are neither cowards nor cannibals. We never fight unless threatened, but we never decline to meet our enemies.' No one spoke. I helped him on with his coat, and together we left the ground while the partisans of Baines picked up their fallen champion and proceeded to make him presentable. Like myself, Omar seemed friendless, for when the summer holidays came round both of us remained with the doctor and his wife, while the more fortunate ones always went away to their homes. At first he seemed downcast, but we spent all our time together, and Mrs. Trigger, it must be admitted, did her best to make us comfortable, allowing us to ramble where we felt inclined, even surreptitiously supplying us with pocket-money. It was strange, however, that I never could get Omar to talk of himself. Confidential friends that we were, in possession of each other's secrets, he spoke freely of everything except his past. That some remarkable romance enveloped him I felt certain, yet by no endeavor could I fathom the mystery. Twice or thrice each year the elderly negro who had first brought him to the school visited him, and they were usually closeted a long time together. Perhaps his sable-faced guardian on those occasions told him news of his relatives, perhaps he gave him good advice, which I know not. The man, known as Mr. Macana, was always very pleasant towards me, but never communicative. Yet he made up for that defect by once or twice leaving half a sovereign within my ready palm. He appeared suddenly without warning and left again, even Omar himself being unaware where he dwelt. Truly my friend was a mystery. Who he was, or whence he had come, was a secret. End of chapter 1 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks.com